MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. This is the final episode. Today, I am joined by the author, associate professor in global politics, Washington Post columnist, all-around hero, Brian Kloss. How are you? I'm great. It's so, so great to be back on the show. Yeah, it's great to talk to you now that having read this entire book... Um, We have some great questions sent in from some of our subscribers. Uh, But what I wanted to kick off with today, and I saved this, I didn't go, I didn't cover this final chapter. It's only a couple pages uh, in in the final episode uh, that we did last week, because I wanted to just ask you directly about it and have you tell us about waiting for Cincinnatus. Yeah, so Cincinnatus, if you're not familiar with him, uh, is this, this figure from Roman history who sort of handed the reins of power a couple of times in these moments of crisis and they sort of go to Cincinnati and say, could you, could you save us? You know, you're this person with seemingly a principled track record of leadership who might be a, you know, a good guy to have in charge in a crisis. And lo and behold, Cincinnati basically tries to get out of power as soon as he possibly can uh, both times that he gets it. And so he's this sort of parable of principled leadership. Now, uh, later on in, in uh, U.S. history, there's the Society uh, of Cincinnati that was set up in homage to him. Cincinnati, by the way, the city is named after him as well. And, um, and the, the amazing thing is that one of the aspects of uh, American history around this, this, this era was that, um, you know, there were people like George Washington and others who are associated with this society very much wanted it to not be tied to bloodlines. Um, and inevitably, the people who uh, ended up benefiting from this society, the sort of society of, of leaders, started changing it to benefit themselves. They started trying to write the rules so that it would be based on lineage. So it's this great instance in which even the society supposed to, that's supposed to um, pay tribute to someone who is selfless and principled end up, ended up being corrupted uh, by the trappings of power itself. It's one of the great ironies. Now, the reason I wrote this as the end of the book is because I end on quite a hopeful note, which is that, you know, I think uh, there's sort of two parallel ideas you have to keep in your head. One is that we can't wait for Cincinnati to emerge from the woodwork and save us every time. I mean, the, the, the reason he stands out is because uh, he's so unusual. So the title of the chapter of waiting for Cincinnati is basically implying it's going to be a long wait. And instead I suggest, and this is the second idea that we can make more Cincinnati like figures uh, if we have good systems. And that's, I think, one of the you know core themes of the book. 
And so I end on quite a hopeful note where, you know, I, I talked to lots of awful people. You've met lots of them if you read the book. Um, and yet, you know, I think there is a better way and there is a better future to be had. And it's, it's a message that I cling to because the last five plus years in U.S. politics have been so utterly depressing that sometimes it's easy to, to lose sight of the fact that we're, we're just a series of good reforms away from a much better uh, outcome. And that, that's what I hope will happen is people who are in power uh, listening to this podcast or, uh, you know, a police chief in rural Louisiana starts to think more carefully about how they design systems of power. And that's so that's why I closed the book that way. Yeah. And it's, it's such a great point. And like you said, one of the great ironies. And right now on the world stage, we're seeing uh, the contrast of two very different leaders uh, in, in Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin, uh, just right in front of our faces. Um, and so much of those two types of leaders are borne out in this book. And so it's, it's, it's um, devastating what's happening in Ukraine uh, at, at this moment. And I think we've got a couple of questions coming from some of our subscribers about you know, that juxtaposition or what's happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, but I was wondering what your top line thoughts were after after having finished this book and talked to all these people that you spoke to, what we are seeing play out in front of our eyes right now. Yeah. So, I mean, the direct comparison from the book is obviously the strong man psychology aspect because Putin's, Putin's shirtlessness only gets him so far, right? I mean, that's the thing that is uh, you know, a lesson is that you can understand why Putin behaves the way he does, but ultimately, you know, reality has come crashing into uh, into his his world, and he started to understand um, that some of the myths around him and the sort of cult of personality of the strongman uh, actually require you to deliver for people. You know, you can only pull the wool over people's eyes for so long. Vladimir Zelensky is is a fascinating character because, you know, I, I, I think many people underestimated how he would rise to this occasion. And one of, the, one of the points that I don't go enough into in Corruptible, I would say, is this idea of sort of these moments of, of leadership tests, you know, sort of power integrity tests that are, I, I hinted them with things like the police uh, in, in the NYPD and the sort of integrity tests they, they did there. But, but you, when you have leaders of countries, you don't know how they're going to respond to them being invaded by a foreign army until it happens, right? You have no sort of, other reference point. And so occasionally you get lucky and Ukraine has been lucky with its leadership. I mean, a lot of people run away in these situations. Um, that's the standard sort of thing that happens when, when the odds are stacked against a leader and they're very likely to face uh, serious harm, imprisonment or death. And, and he's very, very uh, good at, at making clear that he's sticking around. I, the, the other thing that I think is worth talking about here, and this is one of the aspects I don't talk about explicitly in the book, but I'm, I'm sure this resonates from people who have read the book, is how uh, systems of power are determined by the way that you stay in charge. And in, in Vladimir Putin's Russia, the way that you stay in charge is through the oligarchs. It's not through the voters because uh, the voters don't have a say in the rigged elections. So what I find fascinating is how the surprisingly positive, I would say, response so far to Putin from the West uh, has been because they understand that they need to make life for these oligarchs more Russian, basically. They need to give them fewer exit options where they can, you know, vacation in yachts on the Mediterranean and, you know, have their kids go to school in Britain and the United States and have their money all in offshore bank accounts. So um, one of the things that I think is, is clearly the case for Putin is he knows where his bread is buttered with the oligarchs. He's starting to get worried, probably, um, as we're recording this. It's a, it's, it's a situation where, you know, there's, I think he probably miscalculated badly. 
Um, and also, and this is the, the final point I'd say, is that Putin has likely been a, a victim of sort of drinking his own Kool-Aid, so to speak, which happens to leaders very often. I mean, when you live in this bubble where people are afraid of telling you you're wrong and your mind has been warped by power, as I'm sure it has for Putin, uh, you know, he starts to believe his own lies. And I think that explains some of the miscalculation because you live in a fake world. And so you make poor choices based on uh, that false reality. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just fascinating that you brought that up every time I think of that particular scenario where everyone around you is just a yes man, uh, so to speak. Uh, I'm always reminded of a, of a, a friend, a story that my friend uh, Tamara Catan, who's a comedian, would tell about how he was also working in advertising and he was on the golf course with this advertising or this uh, executive CEO trying to work out a deal for advertising and marketing for him. And he found out that Tamara was also a comedian and started telling jokes and Tamara wasn't laughing because they weren't funny. And and the guy's like, why aren't you laughing at my jokes? And he's like, they're not funny. I'm, I'm, I'm sure people laugh at your jokes all the time. I'm not one of them, you know. Um, and it, it came as quite a shock that no one had held that mirror up to up to him uh, in the past. Uh, I also think uh, I love the fact that you could have easily used examples of, of people um, in, in this book when talking about certain aspects, especially I was th- I'm thinking of the macaques on the cocaine study. I can think of some people that instantly pop into my head. But you left that out. And that, I think, f- left the reader with room to plug in their own, do their own thinking, do their own critical thinking. And I thought that that was, was that sort of the purpose of, of leaving the names out? I know you mentioned it. Yeah, it was it was by design. I mean, the the the, the thing... As an author, when you think about why you write a book, um, you have to sort of, you, first off, you imagine your intended reader. And, and my intended reader was sort of the intellectually curious person who wonders why the world is going so badly uh, and how he might be able to fix it. So it's a pro- quite a broad potential readership, I hope. But the reason I was writing it this way was because I wanted someone who had experienced these things in their own life or had seen it in the news to have the ideas be elastic enough that they would fit, you know, regardless of whether they're reading this in 2030 or in 2022. And that's also why I didn't put Trump in the book, um, because I wanted to make sure it was just as timely, even though I hope at some point he will not be part of our politics and we won't talk about him anymore. Um, And, you know, I I think that's the thing that's been really gratifying in the response so far is I've gotten lots of emails from people who, you know, it's sort of like, I, I think they're um, engaging in a bit of therapeutic emailing sometimes where they write to me this long thing about this horrible thing that has happened to him by somebody in a position of power. And it, the, the, you know, of course, I'm sort of like, wow, this is a really long email. <laughs> I'm going to respond to it as best I can and so on. But other times the things that strike me are, you know, this person is imprinting the principles that I'm talking about onto their own life. It's much more meaningful than if I told them, oh, this thing in the news that everybody knows about, that's what we're talking about. So it's, it, it was sort of funny when I got the, the Washington Post reviewed the book and they, the, the main criticism they had was that I didn't have sort of more policy specific interventions for anti-corruption. And I got annoyed about that because that was not the, that was not why I wrote the book. I wasn't trying to write a policy brief. I, I would have written a different book if that was the plan. The idea was to make principles so that somebody, whether they're in an HR department, uh, you know, a political, uh, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, government ministry or whatever it was, or the local the police department could slot in some of these ideas. So you're, you're very astute to have picked up on the fact that I'm deliberately avoiding <laughs> <laughs> Some of these names that are obvious to uh, to come to mind. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you're teaching people how to fish, right? You're teaching people how to write the policy. Uh, and that's the whole point. Uh, because and, and policy, as we know, you can't just plug plug and play anywhere. It has to be it has to fit into your specific scenario. Um, so, yeah, I thought that that was I, one of my favorite aspects of the book. I, I went out on Twitter and applied it. Uh, to two people specifically. Uh, but, you know, that's another story for another day. Uh, let's get into some of these questions from uh, from people who've been reading along and, and listening. And we'll, we'll start with uh, a submission here from Barbara, pronouns she and her. Awesome book. Could you please apply everything in your book to Putin? It seems obvious to me that what he is doing is so similar to the events leading to World War II. And how can he not see that? Yeah, so I've, I've covered some of that in, in what we were just talking about before with Ukraine. But I think, you know, what I find about Putin that's really interesting is this sort of idea of um, a perfect encapsulation of the mistake that social scientists often make of thinking that only, only systems matter, right? And I, I, I think I'm quite clear in the book in saying systems definitely matter, but people really matter too. And I think there's been this pendulum shift in how we study human behavior that because we can quantify things, we do quantify things. And Putin's head is very, very important here, right? Like what he's thinking about. The fact that he was a KGB officer, the fact that he was a person who was politically formed in the Soviet Union when it was one of two superpowers and was actually a, you know, a, a formidable rival to the United States in terms of global balance of power. All of that stuff, I think, really matters. And what I try to show, and this is where you know, I, I think this fits in the book, what I try to show is that the mindset of these people is really, really important. And it's uncertain too, right? You can't, I mean, I, I would love to interview Vladimir Putin, but it's, it's one of those things where it's not, it's not possible for social scientists to do this and to get you know, accurate diagnoses and so on. So you have to sort of infer from afar. And I think the, the combination of the megalomania, the sort of lost sense of empire and the systems that involve complete lacks of checks on him, uh, lots of yes men, uh, and effectively unlimited wealth. I mean, that is, that's something that is a very toxic combination for somebody who is already quite clearly a toxic individual. So, you know, to me, what's, what's actually um, surprising is that this has taken this long for him to actually sort of reveal the, you know, take the mask off and reveal the person underneath. I think he has been doing that for a long time, but this for even the holdouts, with the exception of a few people in the Republican Party who seem to be cheerleaders for Vladimir Putin, the world is under no, you know, false impressions at the moment about what kind of guy this is. So uh, I, I'm amazed that it took so long, but it is one of those instances that shows the longer you're in power, uh, the more that these dynamics can sort of manifest in quite destructive ways. Yeah, and now we even have neutral Switzerland um, throwing their hat in the ring. And then we even have corrupt organizations who are pulling away from, like, I'm thinking of FIFA or, you know, and I apologize, I'll get emails for that, but um, just Orban, you know, I, I mean, like, just very surprising, uh, uh, Erdogan, very surprising people allying themselves with the, with the West and the EU. Um, who I was, I wasn't expecting. I thought for sure China was going to vote yes on mm. that UN resolution, and they didn't. They abstained, which is a bigger deal than I think people understand. But it's it's really something to watch other corrupt people back away from Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and I, I think this is the big question: is how how lasting is this going to be? My my hope is 
that this is a real sea change where it's not just slaps on the wrist that last for a couple of years. I, th I think what's actually happening is Russia is being isolated from the global economy for the medium term. And that's very serious news for the oligarchs. So, I mean, you know, it, I, I wouldn't have suggested that Vladimir Putin was at risk of losing power a few months ago. I, I think it's a non-zero chance now that he will lose power in the next few years. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's go on to a submission from Gail and pronoun she and her. Fascinating book, makes a lot of sense to me. So much insight and research. Yes, I noticed that too. Lots of research. How do we convince others? I would love to send a PDF of the contrasting methods for police recruitment to my local city officials. However, I'm not convinced anyone will listen. I can't get every other citizen to read and absorb these concepts. I can't even get many of my friends to listen, let alone the rest of the country. Well, I'm all for a mandatory book club of Corruptible for the, but no, I'm just kidding. But there, <laughs> I, I, I think the main thing is, um, you know, so, social movements start in small ways, um, little ripples. And I think the, the idea that people who are reading the book, listening to the ideas and so on, start to think about, A, are there any positions of power that you are associated with, even in your own company? Do you have anything to do with hiring? Do you have anything to do with outreach for recruitment? Do you know people who are in positions of power who might think more carefully about these ideas? I mean, that's what I'm hoping will happen is that, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll just get lucky and somebody will hear about the book and they'll happen to be someone who works in quite a consequential position. And hopefully they'll start to say, huh, you know, we, we are sort of on autopilot in the way that we do a lot of this stuff. Maybe we could do it a bit better. But also, you know, sharing, sharing the ideas with people that you know in positions of power and yourself. And then the final thing, of course, is, you know, running for office uh, at the local level. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a way the product of this too, because my, my mom ran for school board and it's what got me into politics. Um, so, you know, I probably wouldn't have been a political scientist if that wasn't the case. And so these things have little ripples that they may seem really insignificant, but um, I'm still quite optimistic that, you know, the US political system is so unbelievably broken that uh, it's going to take a lot of ripples, but that's where you start. And that's the thing is, you know, I, I I always, I always struggle to answer this question in a way that's completely honest, because of course you can say all these things and you still say, yeah, but like the authoritarianism in the Republican party is very, very bad. It's, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive. Um, but I think that a lot of these, a lot of these areas do have low hanging fruit. I and mean, that was the thing that made me so angry when I was writing the book was I was like, this isn't like rocket science. This isn't quantum physics. It's like, maybe we should make policing look less violent and then maybe less violent people will show up. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, what I've been surprised by is that's a lot of, a lot of people have gravitated towards that section of the book is the most memorable. I've gotten a few emails like that. And I'm like, well, it's not, this isn't like some profound, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it makes a lot of sense, but it's revealing that we never think about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, do, do what you can in your own life. I think uh, that's the best advice I can give you. And it's not perfect. It's not going to fix everything, but it's got to start somewhere. Yeah, I do like the idea of, of buying a, another copy of this and, and bookmarking and highlighting those passages and sending it to your local police station. I think that might be or the commissioner. I think that, I, hey, little ripples. Um, but yeah, running for office locally, too. And, and, and if you can't run for office, get involved in your local politics. I think that, you know, we talk about how very important that is all the time. Uh, next up from Jesse T, pronouns he and him. Uh, in a few points throughout your book, but most directly in the opening chapters, you take the position that hierarchy is an inevitable or necessary development to ensure group cohesion as the size of the group expands. While hunter-gatherers may be able to live in an egalitarian society without codified power structures, larger, modern, more complex societies need hierarchical structures in place to maintain order. I've held to this view myself, 
and many others I've read take the same position. That said, I just finished a book by David Graeber and David Wengro called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, in which the authors put forth the argument that this mainstream notion that hunter-gatherers were inherently egalitarian and more complex agrarian societies were inherently hierarchical in some fashion is actually wrong. It was very challenging, a uh, challenging read for me, but it and turned a lot of my assumptions on their head on its heads. Uh, so my question is twofold. Have you ever read or heard arguments like those in the dawn of everything? And two, how might they impact the way you think about your work in corruptible, particularly as it pertains to the evolutionary and anthropological aspects of the book? In other words, if the idea that complex societies require dominance hierarchies turns out to be wrong, would that impact any of the conclusions you draw? And if so, how? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I think there are uh, more nuanced views emerging on this question. I think the sort of standard view, which is the one that I mostly present in the book, is the one uh, developed by Chris Bohm. It's about the reverse dominance hierarchies and the ways in which they sort of cut people down to size. Um, this is with the Kung hunters, with like the arrowheads being rotated and insulting the meats and all these sort of bizarre rituals. Um, I do acknowledge a few sort of wrinkles in that in that thesis. Um, Manveer Singh, who's a researcher at Harvard, I, I came across his work actually while I was in the edits for the book. Um, so I'd already sort of written chapter two, and then I'm reading this new research that's just getting published, uh, you know, like two months before the book went to press. Um, and, and so I included a couple of references to him, and he talks about how this sort of standard narrative of the fact that these roving bands of people had only 80 people in them and were egalitarian. He says, well, what about all the people who were fishing? And it's a fair point, right? Like if you're fishing, you are probably sedentary because, you know, you're not going inland to get your fish. So, um, so I think there's that critique, which is a very apt one. And I also think the picture probably is more uh, uncertain than we, than we uh, previously know. And I, I tried to convey the uncertainty a bit in the book where I talk about the forms of evidence that exist. You know, it's like diet in archaeological records, things like burial chambers. I mean, it's not exactly, you know, DNA testing. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there are serious questions about this, and there'll surely be more research about it. Uh, I don't think it fundamentally changes some of the messages of corruptible, because I think still... What was interesting about that is thinking, are we always going to be exactly the same way we are now? What I was trying to show is that there's different ways to organize human society. And I think the reason I included that as a crucial part is not just because of the evolutionary biology aspects and evolutionary anthropology aspects, which, of course, I go into later on in the book, but also because it's to show that, like, the way that we live now is super unusual, right? Like, this is the thing that is so, so important from that from my point of view, is that like basically no other humans have lived like like we've lived uh, for the last 200 years and, and especially for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So that to me is an important message when you're trying to convince people uh, that it's worth shifting systems because, you know, you can. Right? <laughs> like we're living in the weirdest time that's ever existed in human history. So uh, surely we can we can try to find some ways to to, to tweak things. Uh, and it's not inevitable that we're stuck in these sort of hierarchical, abusive uh, relationships. Yeah. And and Jesse also just wants you to know that he loves all the insights in the book. And as someone who just started a new role as a manager for the first time, he found it to be very particularly apropos. Uh, next up from Josie, pronouns she and her. I learned so much from this book and wasn't surprised by much, except the fact that psychopaths are attracted to being surgeons. I have two questions. Has any democracy done the appointed volunteer citizens advisory thing instead of having elected representatives, any democracy? 
And the Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark do a much better job of providing social safety nets than most other democracies. Do they have the same problems with corruption as other democracies? And why why not, if not? Great questions. So the first one, uh, I don't think there are any countries that have actually done what I proposed in the sense of randomness. Um, what, what has been done in Germany is they have boards, uh, shadow boards, basically, for companies quite often that involve ordinary employees. But the problem is that they're still sort of running for the post. They basically volunteer for it. So the self-selection problem I highlight still probably exists. You're not getting a random cross-section of the employee base. Um, so I'm not aware, if, if you've heard about it, I'd love to, to hear, you know, you, feel free to send me an email if you know of any. I don't, I don't know of any that have actually done this. Maybe at the local level, but certainly not at the national level. Um, the Sweden and Denmark question about corruption is, is, is one that I find particularly fascinating because I do sort of hold up Denmark in this study uh, involving dice rolls as a comp, you know, comparison between uh, India and Denmark with their civil services. But there's a wrinkle in this that I didn't include because it's too in the weeds of corruption, but uh, for the actual, by what I mean, you know, corruption without talking about power and so on, is there's a case of Danske Bank, which is the sort of main financial services institution in uh, Denmark. And it's one of the largest money laundering scandals in history, perhaps the, the largest. And what's what's really interesting about this is that the government in Denmark is really, really clean, but there's still financial institutions in Western countries that provide what I would call corruption services to oligarchs and you know dirty cash coming in from around the world. And they're not really included when we think about how corrupt a country is because we're really talking about the government. So I think the permissive frameworks of the banking and accounting sectors and the legal sector that help provide offshoring and advice and cleaning up and reputation laundering and all this stuff, um, that happens in every Western country. So more than others. And Denmark, I think, is, is definitely prone to it. So, I mean, this is one of the things that has been well exposed by the, the stuff with Putin invading Ukraine is that, you know, one of the reasons why there was so much hesitancy to actually do the hard stuff is because it actually reveals the uncomfortable truth that we're complicit in a lot of these systems and are entangled in them. Um, so, you know, even though I'm trying to show that Denmark is got a very interesting outcome with recruitment for the civil service. It's certainly not a perfect country uh, free of corruption. And in fact, uh, that's, that's, that's the case every, in every Western country, there's significant levels of uh, corruption that's, that are, that are happening below the surface. Yeah. And I think you're um, on, you're right when you talk about what, what we're about to find out uh, as people cut off Russia and oligarchs, just that one country uh, from, from this kind of, uh, you know, permissive, corruptible stuff that happens in these banks uh, and, and you know, news organizations, et cetera, anything. Um, next up from Aaron, pronouns she and her. Rotation is one of the elements you cite to lower incidents of corrupt behavior. Is there another element that could be substituted? I'm thinking about how that would work practically in niche specializations where rotation could be impractical due to specialized knowledge or experience not being easily transferred. I hope that makes sense. I'm thinking specifically of areas like international tax law or matters of foreign policy where interpretation could be gray or heavily nuanced. Um, and then I'll go to part two after after that. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, um, you know, what, what I think is important in understanding the way I set up the, the principles, the last sort of the 10 that, that comprise the last third of the book or so, is that they're supposed to be interlocking and to a certain extent, uh, you know, not all 10 will apply to every situation. So you're right that, you know, rotation, if you have 
uh, highly subject-specific expertise will be very difficult to do. Uh, the same, by the way, is true when I talk about things like blind recruitment uh, with CVs. You can't pick presidents that way, right? We're not going to have like an election in which the CV goes in front of you and it's like well, the mystery candidate comes on stage after they've won the election. Like right, the, the mass singer. singer, yeah. Yeah, mass singer, but for a president. I mean, so it's... <laughs> It's like, you know, to, to me, there's there's some aspects that won't work in, in different situations. Now, what I would say is if you're in a highly consequential post with specialized knowledge in which abuse or embezzlement are likely, then you have to find a different way to provide oversight. So if rotation becomes impossible, then the other oversight mechanisms and recruitment mechanisms and so on become much more important. So you can think of it sort of like a sliding scale, right? Some of them might apply more, more than others. And if you can dial up some of the principles in, in certain situations, then you can dial down other ones because you'll sort of balance out the, the outcome. And that sort of brings up her second part of the question, given that we are evolutionarily screwed as far as choosing people based on competency over confidence or looks. How would you go about changing the recruiting specifically for Congress and other elected officials in order to draw less corruptible people? Yeah, so... I've, this is a question that I've I've talked about more actually in interviews uh, around the book than in the book itself, and I I should have included more on this. Um, but it's you know that's always what happens when you write something is you sort of like like oh, dang that didn't that should have been in there. Um, so what what I think would be a first starting point is to significantly add resources to. Um, basically headhunting political candidates, but not headhunting them in the sort of way that's cutthroat in the you know, financial services industry, but rather to look for people in the community who have a track record of proven integrity and leadership and to proactively find them. And I think you know, sometimes this happens. There's occasionally like a draft certain candidate campaign type thing, but it's not, it's not systematically what we do. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I think is so important. There's another, there's another aspect to this, by the way, that's come up since I wrote the book where, where I've just been amazed at how they sort of said the, the quiet part out loud where, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi got on board with this idea that's gaining steam to sort of ban Congress members from trading stock and so on. And one of the Republican objections to this was they said it will make running for Congress less attractive. And I, I, I'm sitting here, I'm like, <laughs> to yeah, it's like, it's like, <laughs> perfect. This is like the ultimate self-sorting mechanism, right? If you're not running for Congress because you're worried you're not going to be able to trade stocks and get rich off your insider information, please don't run for Congress, right? <laughs> so so to me, you know, it's, it's one of these aspects where you just sort of like, first off, you make the onus on the political parties to, to invest more money in recruitment rather than waiting to see who shows up and says, I want to be a candidate. And, and then secondly, you, you actually try try to think about how would we engineer situations like the stock ban that are absolutely perfect that's sorting out the people who are in politics for the wrong reasons from those who are sorting out the people for the right reasons. The other thing that I've suggested in, in a few interviews uh, that I didn't talk about in the book is this idea of sort of screening and testing um, for higher level candidates. And it wouldn't be based on some sort of law because it's probably not enforceable or probably not constitutional, but you could set up a norm around this. So for example, the New York Times always does uh, these interviews with the presidential candidates where they sort of all make the pilgrimage to the New York Times office and then they get the, you know, the, the interviews printed and so on. What I would love for them to do next time around is to spring on each of the candidates a pop quiz that they can either take or not take. Uh, but of course, they'll print that they decided not to take it. So it'll be embarrassing for them. And the quiz will just be basic things that you should know if you're running for president. Like, you know, like ba basic facts. I mean, for example, point to Afghanistan on a map. You know, that like, you know, is it how much roughly is the Medicare budget each year? Now, 
If you don't know that, fine. You don't have to know that. But if you're running for president, you need to know that, right? And the, the thing that I find bizarre, I talk about this in the watch chapter where it's like the surveillance is all at sort of ordinary people in the, in the company and not at the CEOs and board members. It's the same with like politics. Like how many web-based trainings and vetting opportunities do you have to go through if you're like going into corporate management and then like you become president and there's zero, there's literally nothing. There's no vetting. There's, it's just like, if you get elected, it's fine. And so to me, I think there's some aspects of recruitment that have to have the carrot and the stick. You sort of draw in the better people and then you try to actually make it slightly more challenging for the bad people to, to stay in power and get there. And, and that, that pop quiz and, you know, who knows, maybe we could have a psychopath test applied voluntarily to a few, uh, a few candidates. There'd be some who wouldn't pass. So <laughs> I'm not sure they'd agree to it, but it would be a good idea. Yeah, but we could get them on the record saying no, that'd be fun. Exactly. Um, and Gary, uh, Gary G actually submitted this. Could there be an online open source ranking score for politicians? Something like a FICO based on facts, ranking not by political flavor, but ability to do an honest job. Yeah, you know, I think the the idea is not a bad one in the sense that um, some, you know, some outfits have, have developed a lot of fact checking um, and that's all well and good. And it's a good it's an important public service. Um, and they take an individual claim and they sort of say, you know, how how much of a lie is it and so on. And indeed, during the Trump presidency, the Washington Post, the paper that I write for is, um, you know, they, they, they kept tracking Trump's lies and it was tens of thousands by the end. I think the problem is that given how hyper polarized American politics are, um, you don't really have people who read that who would believe it if it was about their own politician on the right. So, you know, the, you, you can send the Washington Post list of lies that are verified, vetted, I mean, you can click on every link, it shows the fact checking behind it. I mean, is that does that change anyone who voted for Trump? Uh, thinking that, oh, okay, maybe, maybe he was a liar. I mean, perhaps we're on the margins, but that's the problem with these sort of scores is that, you know, what will, what will inevitably happen, and this is what happens when you have a poisoned polarized system, is even if you do the score properly, what it will ultimately show in the current moment is a massive partisan skew. And that will mean that everybody on the right will discount it. Because I, I think that if you did it objectively, you would find significantly higher levels of lying in the Republican Party in the modern day. So, you know, th this is it's, it's a real problem about um, not just accuracy, but about persuasion in in this moment. I still think it's worth doing. I mean, I, I think that kind of thing is worth doing. Um, it's just, you know, you have to sort of fix the system for it to have as much utility as it should. Yeah. Back to systems. Um, just a couple left here. What was the most interesting or surprising abuse of power or incident of corruption you discovered during your research process that you left out of the book? I, it's a great question. I actually had to write to a few people um, and tell them they weren't in the book um, after I did the interviews. I mean, I did lots and lots and lots of interviews for the book, obviously. So um, I wrote a few different sections that ultimately I cut. They didn't fit right with the chapters, even though they're good stories and so on. The one that comes to mind is a guy named Simon Mann. Um, and Simon Mann basically ran a private army, uh, a mercenary army, and uh, tried to take over Equatorial Guinea um, in, a, in a coup and failed to do so and ended up in jail. Uh, Multi-millionaire, I mean, very, very rich man who uh, basically fought in a variety of African civil wars as a hired mercenary. Um, there's a, there's an episode of my podcast, power corrupts called mercenaries that talks about Simon Mann. I interview him in the podcast and so on. And that's a phone interview. And then for the book, I actually sat down and had breakfast in this extremely posh restaurant in London because he's extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily rich. Um, and you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting angle where like, 
it's a different type of power when you think you can just go in and topple a government, right? I mean, that was the plan. Like he, he just, he's just like, we're going to take some helicopter gunships. Like we're going to land, uh, we're going to, and they had all sorts of propaganda videos they had produced and, and so on. And, uh, everything went very badly wrong. There was a hubris to it. Um, that when you actually thought about the plan, it was a very poorly thought out idea. <laughs> and Simon Mann paid for it uh, dearly by spending, I think it was four years in prison and not a very nice prison uh, at that. So there were a few cases like that where I talked to people and they were interesting. It's just, you, you have to balance out um, the types of interviews you have in the book. And I have a lot of stuff that's sort of around authoritarianism um, in countries that are unfamiliar to, you know, say American readers. So it may be, you know, you cut Simon Mann, you put in the, flamingo obsessed homeowners association guy and you know it's it's a balance anytime you're writing a book <laughs> you can't leave out the flamingo guy i mean <laughs> that's uh, that story is just still really fresh in my memory finally do you expect the strong sanctions on russian banks and the russian oligarchs to impact all the other corruption in the world us uk switzerland and the rest will it bring corruption into the light we sort of already talked about this yeah, you know, it, it's my hope that this will be the sort of catalyst for a, a long overdue correction of how willing countries in the West have been to do business with bad people as long as the money kept flowing. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in the UK when, when we're speaking and it's like, you know, they had, a, they had a visa in the UK that you could literally just buy if you had two million pounds. I mean, it's like, so like the number of, of Russian nationals who bought that visa and got permanent residency um, is just, it's astonishing. And they, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't check the cash source nearly as effectively as they could have. So it's, to me, the, the, the real sea change has to exist with, uh, first off, lots more checks on sources of wealth. Um, the second thing that I think is really important is properly resourcing, um, enforcement on this, because you, you have seen some movement on laws to sort of make this a bit harder. But it's sort of like the IRS, right? I mean, if you have like a, a tax code um, that says, you know, you have to do X, but there's no one paid to actually check, then the thing on paper doesn't really matter. And that's what's happening right now is there's a lot of corruption that's technically illegal, but no one is actually verifying it. And that's why you get these massive leaks where, you know, we had the one from uh, Switzerland recently, but there's also the Panama and the Paradise Papers and so on. And, you know, they sort of show us what everyone expected was the case. And I interviewed, you know, as part of my podcast, well, I interviewed um, the people from the Panama Papers, the people who broke that story. And, you know, it was depressing as hell because like I, I said, like, what's changed? Like you had this like mass, it's like one of the biggest leaks in like in history. And it shows this horrible underworld of these extremely seedy people um, doing awful things in quite a brazen way. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, it still sort of just exists. Like you might close down the one bank or you might close down the one law firm, but ultimately it's just like whack-a-mole. So th this, this invasion to me has to be the moment at which Western voters start to vote based on this, because it's not, it's not a question for Russia. It's a question for us. I mean, it's like the rotting influence of this money in our politics. It's not just Russian, it's Chinese, it's all sorts of uh, illicit funds. They, are, I think, are, are really, truly swaying our politics to be responsive to the wrong people. And so, um, yeah, my hope is that this will be the, the moment, the breaking point. But 
unfortunately, you know, our politicians have a short attention span. So if things go back to normal in Ukraine at some point, you know, we hope that the, the war will end. Um, the real question is, is it sustained? Is it actually that there's going to be a, a serious multi-year effort to shift the system, knowing that the skeletons in the closet of some people in the West and some banks and some very powerful donors are going to come out if you do this in any sort of serious way. Because it's not just the Russians that are going to be exposed. It's a lot of other people who put them there or who did business with them or themselves uh, are hiding their money in shell companies offshore. Yeah. And the, and the resources, too. I remember talking, I had an interview with um, former acting director of the FBI, Andy McCabe, who talked about after 9-11, the white collar crime division was decimated there. They had no budget left to to look into those things yep. and provide oversight. We only had 17 people looking into the entirety of the Trump Russia connections. I mean, it's that that's where we need funds appropriated. Right. I, I, but, it's, but it's also I mean, it pays for itself. Right. Because like the, <laughs> so tax, the, the tax evasion, yeah. the tax evasion, the offshore tax evasion is so enormous that like for every dollar you put into enforcement, it pays for itself many times over and not just in raw dollars. I mean, the, the way these things are usually calculated is like how much money do you collect in tax enforcement after you've found out that someone's violating the law? But like, how much do you quantify the fact that you can stop things like invasions because you have fewer corrupt oligarchs that are putting horrible autocrats into power? I mean, there are dividends that get paid by enforcing anti-corruption legislation that go beyond the dollars and cents that you initially get in tax money. So, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's the most no brainer thing, but of course, as you know, I, I hope I've convinced you with the book, it's not because people haven't figured out this is possible. It's because they specifically don't want to do it because they know they benefit from the system. And because then they themselves are not caring about the public interest as much as they're caring about, you know, their own bank accounts and wallets and donors and, uh, you know, post post politics lives in which they end up, gallivanting around the world, these very same people that they're supposed to be uh, policing. Yeah. And then that brings us back to square one, the beginning, chapter one, beginning of the book. <laughs> um, yeah. And I remember, I mean, you know, the, the asset seizure and forfeiture from Paul Manafort alone paid for the entire Mueller investigation three times over. So um, it's it, the money's there. Uh, that would be cool if all of the asset forfeiture just went right back into white collar crime investigation. Um, but I thank you so much uh, for coming on today, answering our subscriber questions. Um, and everybody definitely pick up a copy of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. It's really, really well written, um, very well researched and funny, oddly funny. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Brian Klaas. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this series of the MSW Book Club. Join us next week where we start the book, Go Back Where You Came From by Wajahat Ali. It's going to be a hoot. Thank you very much. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>